This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Today's topic for discussion is going to be on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Today, we are joined by Professor Gregory Poland from the Division of General Internal Medicine. Dr. Poland is the Mary Lovell Leary Emeritus Professor of Medicine, Infectious Disease, and Molecular Pharmacology and Experimental Therapeutics. He is a distinguished investigator of the Mayo Clinic. He's our director of the Mayo Vaccine Program and editor-in-chief of Vaccine. I would include his website at the end of the podcast. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Poland. Thank you. This episode of COVID-19 vaccine rollout with our guest, Dr. Gregory Poland, is being held on Friday, December 18th, 2020. Dr. Poland, I understand you've had a very busy few days. You've been giving grand rounds and the vaccine rollout has been a topic of interest on all the institutions and almost all over the world. We are seeing pictures in the Twitter and pictures in the LinkedIn of CEOs, health providers, the frontline, everybody getting the vaccine and they're putting their vaccine on it. But in the larger scheme of things, I wanted to to have your input as to how did we do it? I mean, when we did the podcast months ago, when COVID rolled out about, it's going to be almost 10 to 11 months, we were concerned whether we are going to have the vaccine with this speed. By golly, it's been done. So from a historical perspective, from the scale of effort, how did everything fall in together? The collaboration, government, uh, money, vaccine developers, researchers, how did it happen? I would equate this to a a sort of wartime effort, Amit. This has been, uh, and it's not just me, it's, it's tens of thousands of people who have just set life aside for the last 10, 11 months. This has been my exclusive focus. And you look around the country and around the world at other colleagues, they're doing the same thing. So I think the good part of what our government did was to uh, put immense amount of funding on the table. I mean, billions and billions of dollars to bring vaccine developers together with academics, with the Department of Defense, Health and Human Services, and basically, as they called it, develop this warp speed program. Talk to colleagues of mine at the FDA. They're working 14-hour days too, just like us. So you cut a lot of red tape and a lot of slowness of the system that would be true at any other normal time. This has just been an all-out galvanizing effort, and it has paid off. Inside of eight, nine months, we were already testing vaccine candidates in humans. By 10, 11 months, we've got EUAs for one vaccine, and I expect the second one today. So we did have some experience with the previous epidemic, with the SARS and the MARS, and that did help us understand about the mRNA. Exactly. And the two vaccines that we're going to discuss today, which are going to be the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna, they are, they are both mRNA. How did this experience of working with the mRNA technology uh, help in developing our current vaccines? You know, you're exactly right, Amit. You know, the work with mRNA vaccines actually started in about 1990 
this is the culmination of 30 years of work. A lot of people like to say, well, aren't these brand new? No, they're not. This has been three decades of work. As you say, these initial vaccines were applied and developed around SARS and MERS. And of course, both of those infections kind of petered out. And that technology, while progressing, it was used for Ebola, it was used for Zika, kind of got put to the side because there was no immediate application. Once this started, inside of weeks, the, the genomic sequence was known. It was put into an mRNA vaccine. Animal trials uh, studies started. And look at where we are today. So I'm looking at both the, both the vaccines. And since July, we've had a phase three trial going on. This like almost like 43,000 patients. Uh, on the, the Pfizer on the, trial. The Pfizer yeah. trial and about 32 or so on the Moderna trial. So combined, we have a huge number of patients. And can you briefly tell us uh, why was it so easy for the mRNA vaccine uh, to be developed? Yeah, think of it this way. The vaccine was like a car just sitting there. And you don't know where to aim the car, right? And how you're gonna move the car. So what mRNA is like, is it's sort of like just dropping a new engine into that car and boom, you're off. So all mRNA is, is a blueprint. It's just a code to say, string together these uh, nucleosides because those nucleosides construct the spike protein of the virus. So this is a really important point. mRNA goes into the cytoplasm of the cell. It cannot enter the nucleus. It cannot integrate with our chromosomes. It cannot persist in the cell. It can only make this protein and nothing else, and then it degrades. So it's really fast, efficient, cheap technology where you literally, you, you hear the term plug and play. We could take out the S protein for uh, coronavirus and put in you know, the XYZ protein for the next virus that comes along and you've got a vaccine. You still have to test it, of course. I'll tell you frankly, when I got the FDA briefing book and I was reading this, my hands were trembling and I got choked up. I have never seen anything like this in my 40 year career in vaccinology. We expected efficacy of 50%, maybe 60%. This is 95 to 100% effective across all ages that have been studied, all race and ethnicity, comorbidities. We do not have vaccines like this. This is a grand slam. I think the only questions that remain from a practical point of view are how long will the efficacy last and some nascent questions around the safety allergy hypersensitivity point of view, which I know you're going to ask me because you know the data. <laughs> so um, you, you use the car analogy. And so the mRNA is the passenger who's, or the driver, and the car is your the, the, the platform. Yeah. The platform, which is, which is we are putting in. I wanted you to specify, I wanted to hear from you it does not enter the nucleus. It cannot. It's handled handle all in the cytoplasm. Right. It does, not have, it does not have the attribute. Now, 
DNA vaccines, a DNA molecule could get into the nucleus. Never been observed with a DNA vaccine, but mRNA does not have the attributes that you must have to enter through into the nucleus where the chromosomes are. So the other important thing which you said was across the age, across different genders, whether you're diabetic or non-diabetic, whether you have any, whether you have hypertension, whether you have any chronic illness, in and out, it's like a slam dunk. When I'm looking at the data, it's, it's 90 plus, 90 plus uh, efficacy for across. So it's an amazing vaccine. And yeah. usually the FDA does, what is it? Efficacy is like 50%. Was the, was the bottom line? You know, that's what, we, that's what we kind of were prepared for, is that we would see something 50, 60, 70%. FDA even said in their initial guidance, we would license a vaccine in the context of this pandemic. If the efficacy reached 50% with the lower bound even being 30%. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at age 16 to 64, obese, non-obese, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Before I ask you about the some of the side effects which have come up, which have not changed, uh, whether you receive the vaccine or not, which I heard about is the Bell's palsy. Yeah. Um, there are a few cases in the Moderna group where they developed Bell's palsy and also in the Pfizer vaccine. But out of like 43,000 or out of 43 and 32, a total of 75,000, there were a handful of cases. Yeah, that seven. Could, that could have happened like just by chance. So we expect that there would be about 15 to 30 cases per 100,000 people. This is about 75,000, and there have been seven cases. So this is something that I think is hard for lay people to think through. Everything we do in life has risk, but you balance the benefit with the risk in order to make a decision. So People hear this. I have friends ask me who are not in the medical field, what does this mean, seven Bell's palsy? What does this mean for anaphylactic reactions? And you have to step back and you say, how many occur just normally, baseline? And it turns out those numbers are higher than what we're seeing in the study. Why would that be? Because generally speaking, the people who enter studies are people who are very attuned to their health, who tend to take good care of themselves. So it's not surprising to me that that would be the case. But if you see the other, other side of the risk, when 95% are being prevented, and this could be anything from mild illness to getting the ICU, getting a vascular problem, or getting your leg amputated, or ending up in a ventilator uh, with your lung completely shot, and it's preventing all of that, as opposed to very, very tiny risk of having some complication which is manageable, like yes. a palsy, which is very manageable. There's so much good treatment. So, In fact, uh, Ahmed, it's interesting. At the FDA meeting yesterday, there was a gastroenterologist from New York who spoke. He got COVID. He spent a month in the ICU. He survived, but he has bad pulmonary fibrosis. He lost feeling in his feet, he developed atrial arrhythmias, he can't work. And you think about, would I trade a 0. 0.000 something percent risk of getting the vaccine against that anytime? 
Something which is not even talked about is now the post-COVID syndrome, which we are seeing in 10% of cases, which is massive fatigue, uh, memory impairment, 10% of the millions of patients. I mean, it's rolling out and that we're going to see. Yes. Up. So hopefully this 95% uh, population, which will be protected, will not have to deal with it. I agree. Another thing which I have, uh, have tried to look at, and I saw the Moderna data, and maybe you can clarify, is the transmission of asymptomatic transmission of COVID viruses. Does the vaccine prevent, between the first vaccine and the second vaccine, people who have taken the vaccine, do they get less asymptomatic carrier state? This is one of the topics. You're, you're, you're spot on in asking the question, very insightful. This was one of the uh, topic areas that was discussed in both of the FDA meetings. The data is not clear yet. It's actually a very hard thing to test because you'd have to do very frequent nasal swabs in tens of thousands of people, which is hard to do when you don't even have enough of them to you know, do routine testing. What I can say is in both instances, the early data estimates are that, yes, it does prevent that. And uh, not only for you getting asymptomatic infection, but what we don't know yet is the transmission piece of it. Now, you look in after one dose, the protection rates are 80 to 90%. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to imagine biologically how you'd prevent mild but not asymptomatic disease. Now, One way that that can happen is asymptomatic disease requires sterilizing immunity. So could that be a way in which you could still have asymptomatic disease? If you did, could you transmit it? We don't know. We know that absent the vaccine, you can, but we don't know if you've gotten the vaccine. I looked at the data on Moderna, and they did take nasal swabs or trial participants who were receiving the second vaccine. Yes. What they found at that point that there were 52 asymptomatic cases in both the groups, 38 were in the placebo group, and 14 were in the vaccine group. So that did suggest that there was some decrease. I mean, even though the numbers are less. In fact, in the the Moderna, it it decreased it by two-thirds, but it has a wide confidence interval. That's right. So that's why I say our best estimate is that it does. So now we have the vaccine and now we have some fear, but fear is a perception among the people and especially the year we have had, there's so many information which have been rolled out. What do we have to say to people who are afraid? How do we dispense fear from people? Yeah, uh, my, my daughter's a mental health professional who specializes in trauma and she and I have written about this. And she, in fact, developed a model called the Preferred Cognitive Style and Decision-Making Model. You can find it online. And I think it's very useful for healthcare providers. What her model says is you have to figure out the preferred cognitive style of the patient in front of you and adapt your education style to the needs of that patient, something we don't do very well oftentimes. We have been professionalized to be highly analytic. We want data and numbers. Our patients often don't. They come and they they are prone to make fear-based or emotional or what's been called heuristic decisions. And what I do with them, and you're the same way, we spend a lot of time with our patients at Mayo Clinic. I take them through 
and show them what are the known risks and the known benefits. It's the only wise way to make a decision is to balance those for you in your particular situation. And I found that to be very, very helpful in uh, guiding people to make good decisions. So what, what is being done at the national level when we are rolling out this vaccine? We hear about these different phases, the timing. Uh, some of us are gonna get it sooner than others. Is there going to be vaccine for everyone? We have 350 million population, but all probably don't need to get the vaccine. But what would you say? And there are two. I understand you're going to get two vaccines. Yeah, that's one of the logistical problems is it's two doses. With both mRNA vaccines, it requires a cold chain that we don't normally have to adhere to. So that makes it logistically challenging. You're right in that it will happen in waves. So the recommendation from CDC is that the first phase called 1A are people like you and I, healthcare providers who have a high risk of getting infected and people in long-term care or, or elderly. That's actually gonna be phase 1B. And it just kind of rolls through that way all the way to phase three where everybody who hasn't gotten one can get it. The issue is supply. We thought we were gonna have 40 million doses of Pfizer. We don't, we have 20 million. When we get this EUA for Moderna, which I hope is today or tomorrow morning, Moderna's got 100 million doses ready to go in the US. So we're very quickly going to be able to have doses. And so this is a good time to have the conversations about risk and benefit and questions that people have but you'll get uh, the opportunity to get a vaccine. If you decline getting that, you go back to the end of the line and then you wait for whenever the next supply might be. And once you get the first dose, you're almost guaranteed to get the next dose. Yes, so they, will keep, they will keep aside a second dose. But given the difference of the storage between Moderna and Pfizer, that will really create a bit of a issue because looks like Pfizer can only be stored in the most prestigious institutions and minus minus 75 yeah yeah I mean not many many places have that kind of a temperature you know uh, that, that's a temperature requirement colder than Antarctica just to put it into perspective <laughs> so you're right that's going to be very hard globally it's going to be very hard in the smaller uh, communities, rural areas, etc. And so the Moderna is probably going to be the one which we might be hearing more about if logistically it's not possible to have Pfizer going everywhere. Yeah. Well, you know, the Moderna vaccine can be stored at a standard freezer temperature, minus 20, which sure helps. Um, the vaccines that come out after this will probably be more at the refrigerator temperature requirement. So one of the things I understand, we talked about the healthcare workers and how we are rolling out, but one of the questions which comes out is the ethics and the disparities. It is the poorer people, is the, is the patients of color, where the economic situation was dire, and yes. they, they got it. Um, they got a lot of COVID. So is there any thinking of identifying them when we are rolling out? That wow. group of individuals are gonna get the vaccine pretty soon. Yeah, so what happened is the National Academy made recommendations, the CDC made recommendations. What will happen is each state will be allocated based on population, 
each state will be allocated a certain a rolling amount of vaccine. It's up to those state governors and public health departments to figure out how they're going to distribute it in their state using the federal guidelines that, that have been developed. The hard part on it is how do you protect communities with vaccine where these very communities have been subjected to abuse, to violations of trust, to inadequate medical care, to historical studies that have been done that were unethical by any stretch of the imagination. How do you say to them, look at the hesitancy we just see in the general population. How do you say to an African-American community, to a Hispanic community, to a Native American community, some Asian communities, that they should trust this vaccine? And I think that's where opinion leaders, I think uh, there, there are lots of individuals, including on the spiritual side, the religious side, that are helping in that effort. Because at some point, you have to say, look, here's what we know about the vaccine. We believe, I got it in my arm, my kids got it. We believe that benefit far exceeds any risk. And if you don't take the vaccine, you've seen what happens in your community. I mean, it's been devastating in some of these communities. We can't just use numbers and probabilities. We've got to talk human to human, like I'm talking with you, about how we make these decisions and how we do it. No, I really, really get it when you're talking about opinion leaders, religious leaders, whoever is the leader in the community getting it. But there are a lot of myths going around. Yeah. And one of the things you cleared up with mRNA does not enter the, the nucleus. It's not a DNA uh, vaccine. Fact, so that is not in fact, just, just to put a little granularity around that. So you get injected with an mRNA vaccine. It's a lipid nanoparticle and inside of it is this mRNA blueprint. That lipid gets into your cells. That lipid is pretty rapidly degraded and eliminated within a day or two. The mRNA, it starts disintegrating right away, but can last up till about eight to 10 hours. That's it. And then it self-destroys basically. You know, this idea that you're injecting something into me, it's gonna remain in me, it's gonna cause harm in me, just isn't consistent with the facts of how the science of this works. And I think a lot of people just don't understand that. So getting this information out is, is really key. So I, I commend you that you're doing this. If I have suffered from COVID, should I get the vaccine? And when should I get it? Absolutely. And the reason for that is several fold. Number one, we know that people who got infected with seasonal coronaviruses all become susceptible and get reinfected. We saw markers of immunity decrease in people who got SARS. We've seen antibody levels fall by half within three months in people who got COVID. Now, they still have cellular immunity, which is a little harder to measure, but we also have at least a few handfuls of well-documented cases of people who we know had COVID, we know recovered, and then proved that they got COVID again. So we are recommending that they get immunized. Now we might defer them for 90 days after they got the infection, 
only because we think they will be protected those first 90 days, allowing us to give other people vaccine and protect them. So who should not get the vaccine? You told about almost everybody should get, but who should not? So we do not want to give it to people in whom the vaccine has not been studied. Pregnant women, not knowingly. Now, if they're pregnant, they can decide to get it. We wouldn't hesitate to give it, but we want to do more studies. Younger people below the age of 16 who the EUA has not been issued for, people who've had COVID within the last 90 days, people who got convalescent human plasma against COVID, people who took COVID monoclonal antibodies, we defer them for 90 days. And then anybody who has a known allergy to a known component of the vaccine. That's not any allergy. I think the UK did a disservice by saying, okay, uh, we had two cases of this. Nobody who's had an allergy to a medicine, to a food, to a vaccine is going to get the vaccine. I think that's going way beyond the science. What we're saying is only people who have had known reactions to a known component of the vaccine. That's great. So almost everybody can get it. And even patients on chemotherapy, those who are getting active chemotherapy, they are candid because this is a killed. Yeah, there's no live virus in it. So there's no risk that way. Now, people on chemotherapy, people on severe immunosuppressive regimens were not studied. And they never are in vaccine studies. Would we give it to them? Absolutely. They might not have the same level of protection. But even if we got 20, 40, 60%, that's better than nothing. One other group, Amit, that I didn't mention is that people have had bone marrow and solid organ transplants. We generally don't start immunizing with a vaccine like this until six months after that transplant. But they are at high risk. We did cover a lot of ground on the vaccine. What do we know about mRNA vaccines in particular? I mean, do the neutralizing antibody last for a year? Is it lifelong? Is it shorter? Is it longer? Yeah. Do you have any, any sense of, you, do you have a crystal ball? You're asking the same questions we're asking in our lab. <laughs> uh, and you, you set it up exactly the right way. You know, this canvas that we call COVID-19 was blank in January of 2020. We have put a lot of pixels on that canvas. But we don't see the full and clear picture yet. We're still learning things about influenza vaccines, and we're entering into eight decades of making and using flu vaccines. So, you know, I think we have a lot to learn. I'm the first to say that all of science is tentative, right? We always learn more. So the only thing we can do is make decisions based on what we currently know, and be cautious about the things we don't know. And I think as we are in every area of science in that domain. So my personal thought is that it is very likely that we are going to need boosters. I don't know how often, and it may be different for different groups. For example, older guys like myself, maybe I'll need it every year. Young, healthy guys like you, maybe it'll be every three years, you know? <laughs> so who knows? Kids, maybe every five years. So from the science of vaccine and immunology, everybody keeps talking about herd immunity. Yeah. What percentage of 
our population ought to either be vaccinated or have the neutralizing antibody or have an infection or something to say, well, it's safe to open up some of the shops that we have closed, schools we have closed? Really good question. Um, and I'll tell you about a very interesting article that appeared, I don't know if it was the beginning of this week or end of last week, and it was a city in Brazil where they documented that 70 plus percent of people had gotten infected and new cases were still occurring. So it's apparent that where we thought maybe we could get to herd immunity around 70% is still not high enough. We got to have higher than that. Now this community suffered devastating uh, hospitalizations and deaths. So clearly the herd immunity by letting everybody get infected approach is not moral, not ethical, not tenable. We're gonna to have to get there with vaccine. And therein lies the issue, because if we have uh, an appreciable percentage of the population that doesn't take the vaccine, none of us will be safe. Let me pose a hypothetical and challenging question. And you might say you, you don't know because it's tough. Is it as bad as smallpox? You know, the WHO had to go with the compulsory smallpox eradication program and all of us uh, growing up had to get vaccinated against smallpox, so much so that at one point of time, I don't know what year it was where WHO said smallpox is eradicated. Yeah, it was eradicated, declared eradicated in 1980, though we didn't have any cases and stopped routine immunization in the U.S. in 72 or something like that. I've had the vaccine, the small smallpox vaccine, three times in my life, and I've done multiple smallpox vaccine trials at Mayo with new smallpox vaccines. No, SARS-CoV-2 is not the same lethality of uh, smallpox. Smallpox is a devastating disease. A lot of people want to equate it to influenza. This is far more severe than influenza. Influenza doesn't kill 330,000 Americans in a year, and we're not done. The estimate is that by the time we get to about March, one in 700 Americans will have died of COVID. This is a serious disease. Now that's not equally distributed in yeah. the population, but for somebody to believe that this is, you know, quote, just the flu is to turn their mind off and deny science. It's horrific with, with vascular problems, cardiac problems, yes. all kinds of, uh, issues going on. So it's far worse. But apart from the antibody status and the 95% and the prevention, if I get the vaccine and I get to carry a certificate, does it allow me to travel uh, to other countries down the line? Does it help yeah. in any way to say that, hey, look, I've, I've complied and I'm safer, even though I have to wear the mask and the hand sanitizer, social distancing, I understand I have to do all of that but does it provide me in some kind of a passport, like a vaccine passport? Yeah, so that's being actively talked about. There are countries that are saying, you will not enter our country without evidence of immunization. So that's gonna be important as we move into the future. I believe that once we get to fully licensed vaccines, I believe that it should be made mandatory for healthcare providers. We have a duty 
to not harm our patients by spreading diseases we know how to prevent, just as we do with influenza. We all get the flu vaccine every year. I think it should be mandatory in the military, and it will be. People have tossed around the idea, should it be mandatory in the public? It's an interesting idea. I think it's probably not tenable. We can't get people to wear a piece of cloth across their face. I don't think that's going to work well. But if you have to have a certificate of immunization, now you've provided another motivation for people who want to go across states, who want to travel to other countries, who want to open up a business, whatever it might be, however those rules might look. Now we've provided a nudge to get their vaccine. For some countries, like, you know, Africa and all that, you get a yellow fever vaccine if you have to get yes. there. You don't need it to any other countries, but that's mandatory. You have to show it before. And this was far before COVID and others. Exactly. I wonder whether uh, it might, people might put it in a different perspective, but, you know, businesses or big buildings or nursing homes, before I'm, I have to go and see my loved ones, my grandmother is there or my mother sure. is there. Sure. I've had a gentleman who's been having trouble with his brothers. He's wearing a mask. His elderly parents are there in the nursing home. His two brothers who don't want to wear a mask want to go and see the parents. And I was telling him that maybe you should have to tell your brothers at least take the vaccine and protect yeah, yourself. That, that may be required. You, you won't be able to come into the hospital or into a nursing home without getting uh, uh, the vaccine. And you know, remember, we are such a me rather than a we society. We take the vaccine not only to protect ourselves, but our loved ones, the people we work with, that we worship with, that we go to school with, that we are passing by in the grocery store. We take the vaccine for the good of all of us. Mm -hmm. The Eastern, at least the Eastern Asian countries, Southeastern Asian countries, the we mentality is big there. Yeah. And yes. so Singapore and China and mm. Hong Kong, Japan, the thing, Korea. Yeah, the other thing they do, and I, and I hope this will be a positive fallout of this pandemic, is during the winter, they wear masks. Yes. And these I respiratory know. viruses. I mean, we've had almost no influenza because there are people wearing masks. Yeah. We've saved people from dying or being hospitalized of influenza. I, I live in Minnesota. I watch, look outside my window and there's so much snow. I actually feel very comfortable wearing a mask. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel comfortable. Heats up my lungs, I guess. And that's, that's great. So we are winding down. So do you see any shortage of vaccine in the next rollout phase, in the next three to six months? Or you think the amount of effort that the government has put with Moderna, at least, it's a, a, lot of, a lot of help has gone to Moderna. Yeah, I actually got the numbers, um, and, and, it, and it's helpful to kind of know these numbers. It turns out that uh, Moderna will ship 25 million doses by the end of this month. Okay, so that's already matching what we have with Pfizer. They have an estimated 100 million doses already available, and those will very quickly get rolled out in the January through February timeframe. Assuming nothing goes wrong, I think we will have a lot of vaccine. We need a lot more. <clears throat> As you say, you know, right now we can't immunize kids, but, you know, when you add everybody up in society, we're about 330 to 350 million people 
and we need two doses of vaccine, at least for these initial vaccines. You know, that's, that's 700 million doses of vaccine. And then there's also the rest of the world that needs vaccines. So we need a lot more vaccine. And it would be okay if I get the first dose of Pfizer and the second dose is Moderna because they are we both don't, have That's a very good question and we don't know that. There is zero information about that. That has not been studied. It needs to be. We don't have any biologic reason why that wouldn't work. In a pinch, we would do that, but it's not uh, a recommendation at this point. Thank you, Dr. Poland. Uh, we learned a lot from you from, from summarizing what you are saying. Uh, the vaccines are extremely effective. The side effects are low. We still need a lot of talking to do with opinion leaders, uh, community leaders, religious leaders, kind of making a case of point. We need to work across different lines, especially individuals who are in socioeconomically dis disadvantaged population. You're very, um, you're very right. In fact, you know, one thing I would say to anybody who listens to this podcast, you are an information conveyor and amplifier. You have an opportunity to do good by helping people that suffer from misinformation or myths, by pointing them to the data rather than fear or emotion. And if we all do this, I think that's a grand way to start off the new year. That's excellent. That's an excellent summary. I'm going to just stop with that. So we have been talking with Dr. Gregory Poland on COVID-19 vaccine. If you have time, it would like to look at Dr. Poland's website is www.mayo.edu slash research slash lab slash vaccine dash research dash group dash overview. And I would include that in our podcast. There's a whole lot of information there about all kinds of vaccines, especially our COVID vaccine. Thank you, Dr. Poland. Any parting thoughts from you? Yeah, I'll try to make it really easy. Hands face, and space. We're going to need to do this, even with the rollout of vaccine, until we know how long immunity lasts and until as many people as we can immunize get the vaccine. So wear a proper mask properly, keep physical distance, wash your hands, and get the vaccine. There is nothing to dissuade me from getting it, from recommending it to my family, there is, at worst, very teeny levels of any kind of safety concern, but huge benefits. And that risk-benefit ratio is enough to make me say, please, please get this vaccine, any of them that you can get, and protect yourself, your family, and your community. Thank you, Dr. Poland. Uh, with that, we end today's podcast. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic uh, podcast, please subscribe Stay healthy, uh, wish you a very happy Christmas and Merry Holidays. Uh, stay safe during the holidays and we'll get back to you next week. Like I always say, think positive, test negative. <laughs>